Welcome, Kate. Thank you very much for joining us today. Um, I'm going to start, if I may, just talking about the main character in your historical crime stories, uh, who's Kitty Peck. Mm -hmm. And when we first meet her, she's only 17 years old. And I just wondered if I could ask what made you choose a teenager for the main protagonist, which is what in, in an uh, adult book. I know, it's, it's kind of an odd thing. Partly, I think, because I knew that in Victorian London at the end of the 19th century, life was short. So, oh. um, you know, somebody like Kitty probably would have had potentially a lifespan of about 30, 35 at the most. Um, also, people grew up very fast in Victorian London. So Kitty at 17 is probably more like, say, a 25-year-old would be today. But because of her background and her past and things that have happened to her, she's also a curiously naive young woman, and she's been quite protected or shielded in some ways. So I kind of wanted to make her a character who was young and impetuous and fiery and kind of like kind of like a sword of rightness, really, righteousness, but also somebody who was perhaps kind of sexually naive and sort of personally naive. So she's young and she's old and she's vulnerable as well. Um, and it was a deliberate decision to make her, because I didn't want her to be a rattled old musical performer, yeah, yeah. which probably somebody of, of 24, 25 probably would have been in, in you know, the real musical age. Kitty's a mu she works in musicals, that's her. That's her background, but then not like the good old days. <laughs> <laughs> well, she is a, she's a great character, but along Thank with you. her, there's a, there's a there's actually a, a great cast of characters in the book anyway. And I, I just as I was reading, I just felt they jump out of the pages at you. Um, so, how long does it take for you to for, for your characters to take shape and and their backstories to evolve? They all leapt into my head fully formed, and that is a really weird thing. I kind of, Kitty came from a competition that I entered. I entered the Faber and stylist magazine writing competition and what they wanted was the first 6,000 words of a crime novel uh, with a strong female protagonist that's what they asked for and there was, there was nothing about when it, was, when it could be set or you know, eras or kind of situations whether it was going to be a police setting or procedural oh, right. or something like that um, and I was persuaded to, to, to take my, my husband and some friends said oh you should have a go at that so eventually I did and um, I went down one day and I started writing in our basement where I work. And I really, in my head, I was really clear that what Faber and Stylist wanted was perhaps kind of like a woman police officer who had a difficult marriage and perhaps a problem child or kind of a secret that she was hiding. So kind of like a strongly modern domestic noir setting. I started to write and what came out was the first chapter of, of Kitty Peck and Musical Murders, which is basically a rattled opium-addicted crime baroness talking to this kind of quite mouthy dancing girl come slop girl who works <laughs> in her music hall and I honestly don't know where it came from I think there are lots of things as my family came from Limehouse originally so there's that I love the theatre I think there was that um, I love Dickens and Miss Havisham I think there's a kind of a soup song of that in there but I you know if you if you actually pinned me against a wall and said where did that come from at that moment I have absolutely no idea. And I showed it to my husband later on and said, well, I've just written this, what do you think of it? And he clearly was expecting some, you know, modern crime thing. And he just looked up and said, where did that come from? And we both went, I've got no idea. I think some of the best things come that way, though. So that's Perhaps, yeah, <laughs> yeah, perhaps. I was at an event recently and I was in the audience and I listened to Ian Rankin. Mm -hmm. And he had this incredible theory, which I think is probably true. He said that whenever any author sits down, or writer sits down, or anyone really, I suppose, sits down to write... There are possibly like a million stories scudding around in the air above their heads. And if you're sitting in the right point at the right moment, that story will dash into your head. And I, I've kind of held on to that's that. That's a really good I thought, yeah. Wow, that's kind of like, you know. Brilliant. No, I, um, 
so in terms of pub getting published then your first story published was that how you got into yeah. being published by winning that competition yeah so I kind of um, so I sent off those 6,000 words um, and I, I went and I, I got obviously got through to the you know the last I think it was four and we all had to go into favour we were all invited in for a kind of an hour interview um, and at the end of my interview I could kind of tell it was going well and they really liked the character and they liked her because she wasn't a redhead called Kate because all apparently nearly every every entry they'd received <laughs> was a redhead called Kate staring out of her kitchen window was how the book started which right? I thought was really funny and they said well yours was so different when we started reading it that kind of actually P.D. James was one of the judges at the time really? which was quite exciting so this was six years ago she's, she's obviously dead yeah. now um, anyway I had this interview and I kind of felt it was you know, going okay Adrian they were really enthusiastic and then at the end um, I think it was Hannah Griffiths who was one of the editors at that Fable at the time said well so Kate how much have you written of this and I kind of looked at her and said well just just what you've got there and I literally saw the colour kind of bleach from her face because I knew at that point she was thinking this is the one we're going to go with and then she was so horrified that there was no more and then she said oh do you think you if we did offer you uh, do you think you could write it by what shall we say uh, next February and this was October the year before and having not done this before having no idea and you know because these words had just appeared I blithely said oh yeah that'd be all right I'll do that and it was the worst Christmas I have ever had. It was just, the, I just, you know, I just, my bum was basically glued to the sea in our basement. And I wrote and I wrote and I wrote. And it was a really, 2013 was quite a, a snowy year. Mm-hmm. Yes, and, it was. And I, you're probably, there's loads of snow in the book. I think you, you said you were reading yes, it I earlier. Have, yeah. So, I mean, there's lo- now I've read it again recently. And I just, there's so much snow in that book. And that's because basically we've got a half window in our basement. And all I looked up every time I saw was feet walking past covered in snow. And that's why there's so much snow in that first book. Influenced by your surroundings. I was, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, talking about other influences, and you, you picked up on them there. Um, music halls are obviously a central theme in the stories, mm-hmm. which were a main form of entertainment at that time in yeah. the 1800s. Um, what was the reason for picking music halls as a, as a venue for the action to unfold? Well, again, I I'm not quite sure. I mean, it just all came out. I think I've, I'm quite fascinated by the lives of those music hall performers because I think I, I grew up at a time when the good old days was on every Friday and quite often my granny would babysit for me or my nan. No one ever has yeah. a nan these days, but she was a nan. She was a good old Londoner and she loved the good old days. So if she was babysitting, she'd let me stay up and watch the good old days and I was allowed to have a little tiny tumbler full of Guinness with her. <laughs> And she really got into it, and she knew all the old songs and things, so it had kind of a very warm memory for me. Um, but of course, the, and I, I love the costumes, obviously, mm. you know, as a child, you see all these people wearing, all in the audience, they used to wear, they used to dress up, I think it was filmed at Leeds City Varieties, and it was up there, people, the audience used to dress up in kind of like 19th century costume and kind of like you know, military outfits and huge hats and feathers and for a child who loved dressing up it was mm. you know, quite a sumptuous thing to watch the real musical environment wasn't like the good old days at all it was incredibly harsh incredibly rough incredibly raucous and then I found out that my family uh, who lived in the East End had actually gone to East End music halls they were poor and they were my family were poor um, and at the end of the 19th century they were Irish immigrants and it was a way of escaping a really mm. hard week you'd spend your tuppence, you'd put your tuppence over the bar you'd go in and it was escapism yeah. but it was it was raucous, it was rough the performers often had very short lives um, it was actually a place where women could make their money on their own without having, you know, without kind of having a man to control them but a woman's life was quite a dangerous life um, there was prostitution was always like you know, mm. somewhere on the scene perhaps 
alcoholism was rife, um, people got consumption, people became addicted to various drugs and things. Very often the performers would perform at kind of several halls in one evening, so they'd have to either walk between them or rattle between them in a hackney carriage. It was cold, they drank to keep warm, um, very often they died of stress to the liver, if not venereal disease, before they were 40. And you don't shy away from that in any of the books? No. You know, all of that is in there, but no. it's very, a very well, I don't true account of, of it. I don't want to kind of make mm. it... I don't want to gloss over it, because, you know, it, it, it is quite horrific, yeah. actually. But, um, having said that, the books have a, I hope, a sort of kind of a jokey... Because I do think it's true that if you lived in, you know, Victorian London at the end of the 19th century and woke up every morning, you weren't thinking, poor me, I'm an urchin. What you were thinking was, right, I'm going to get out there, mm. I'm going to live, what am I going to do today? You know, it kind of, how am I going to make it through? And Kitty's definitely that sort of character, yeah. isn't she? she yeah, yeah she she's goes. kind of, yeah. She's, um, do, do the musicals that you mentioned, like The Comet and the Palace, did they exist or was that just they, something? They, I made them up. So in the books, uh, the books revolve around the, the Carnival, the Gordie and the Comet. And they're the three musicals that are owned by Lady Ginger, and they're kind of a front for her more revolting criminal enterprises, really. Um, but I based it, um, I based all three of them, really, on Wilton's musical, Ye East End, oh, which right. is the last surviving musical, you know, in its original condition. That you oh, can go I didn't see. know there was still one. You, oh, you have to go. You have, it's oh, fantastic. Really? And I went there because in my day job, I, I work, until very recently, I worked for the Society for the Protection of Ancient Buildings, and uh, we're all about how you repair old buildings and how you look after them and how you conserve them. And just at the time I started, see, this is all just at the time I started writing these books, I had gone on a site visit with a load of surveyors to see a Wilton's musical right at the beginning of its re- restoration project, really. And they were um, all blokes and they were all in their hard hats and they were all wandering around sort of tapping woodwork and sort of, oh, we put an acroprop here and, oh, we can, we can get rid of that, we'll take up that floor. And I was just looking at the stage, it's got these incredible barley sugar twist, twist columns and this raggy old curtain and it is literally, it's the size of two tables, the stage, it's a real kind of bar stage. I was looking at it and thinking, my, my word, you know, the people who've stood mm. there with their rough voices and belted out at an audience that was belting stuff back at them. Because that's the other thing about the musical, it wasn't polite. It was rough, you know, the audience was as rough as the people on stage. And it was almost like stand-up. If you were a man or a woman doing a routine in a musical, you had to have an incredible power or an aura or some mm. sort of charisma, otherwise you were toast. Heckled. You were toast, <laughs> you know. So. so it's kind of a really... It's a kind of a powerful and exciting and quite contemporary, in a way, environment. Mm. Um, it's not polite. It's not neat. It's it's not all furs and jewels. It's kind of like it's struggle, and that, I, that really appealed to me. Yeah. I was actually it was one of the things I was going to ask you because if you um, I was interested um, when you were saying because um, I was reading about your work with the Society for the Protection of Ancient mm. Buildings, and one of my questions Spab. was going to be it's called Spab, but Spab, but Spab, <laughs> Spab, <laughs> Spab it's easier. <laughs> I thought I'd give it his full name first of all. Um, and uh, what, one of the questions is going to be whether any of the stories that you heard about the buildings inspired your work, but obviously it did if yeah, you went into... it did, yeah, yeah I know. Um, I mean, I, I, was, I've been, I was so lucky. I, I got to visit some amazing buildings um, through through that work, quite often at the beginning of repair projects when they were looking for the funding and stuff to do it. But Wilton's was definitely the one that... Yeah. It clearly lodged itself in my mind, you know. And it wasn't far from our office, actually, because our office was in Spitalfields uh, in a lovely old Georgian right. building. So we would just walk around the corner down to Lemon Street or Lemon Street, and it, um, the Wilton's musical is disguised as a row of three Victorian houses, Georgian houses. If you look at it, it's now there's a primary school in front of it, so you've got all the kids playing in the playground. Then there's this row of really nice houses, and you go through this extraordinary door, and you are in a 19th century musical in a really original condition. 
and it's just yeah. uh, and it, just the smell of it and the way it sounds and the way it feels it's it's a really special place well I just because um, I felt that you really get a sense uh, from your books what the Limehouse area of London's like and, oh, and, and it, what it would have been like in the 1880s um, and if, if you forgive me there's a, a scene um, that I just there's basically a sentence in the book that I just want to read out to you so this is a scene from Kitty Peck and the Music Hall Murders and they're down by the docks and this just epitomises what, what really what I felt that you do, did um, so it begins the night was thick with the scent of trade every step brought a sharp new tang coffee spice rum sweet tar tobacco stale wine and the meaty fatty smell of wool if you could bottle the air of the docks you could carry the world in your pocket and on reading that I was just there I could taste it I could see it I could smell everything and I just wondered how as an author you managed to conjure up such a sense of place without kind of experiencing that because you wouldn't have well maybe I did my grandfather was a docker my grandfather Timo, no one ever called him Grandad, was a docker. He worked at the London docks all his life. He had lots of various little jobs actually. He was a bit like, he was a bit of a Del Boy really. I yeah. think he had quite a lot of little jobs on the go really. But he worked in the docks and I remember him, and he used to take me for walks through Wapping when I was very little on a Saturday. And I, looking back, I think those works, walks were quite often to collect things from people. <laughs> but he kind of, but he, he, I remember him saying to me once, and I, I'm sure that that's where that came from. He said, if you covered your eyes now and asked me where I was, this was back in the 60s, I could tell where I was in Wapping by the smell. Wow. Because so, yeah. even back then, the, the particular you know, areas had different trades that came in. But, um, and the other thing that I read, because I did do some research, I don't do a lot of research in my books because I think it can kill them, but um, I read uh, this Night Walks, and his name has escaped me, Mayhew, Mayhew's Night Walks. Um, and a bit like Dickens, he used yeah. to kind of like walk around London and then kind of like describe what he'd, what he'd seen and kind of what he'd heard and what he'd smelled. And there was a passage about um, the docks and the trades and the different trades that came in. And it was about the horn sheds and the mutton trade and the wool sheds and the coal, the coal mm. sheds as well. And he, it was really, I mean, he was writing kind of like quite a straight account, but I, I, I think I took that and thought, well, what would that be like if you were standing there on that corner and smelling all of that? Well, no, thank I you. Thank no, you I definitely. Yeah, that was. I was definitely there. Was, and that's not, that's just one instance. There's lots of instances like that through the books that I just feel. Yeah, you, you really um, can picture the the, the moment um, from oh, what good. you're saying. Oh, good. Um, now you've had some interesting jobs actually, from being an assistant to an antiques dealer to a local newspaper journalist. That's right. <laughs> um, and I just wondered how uh, you the skills that you acquired in the previous roles that you've had have helped you to become an author and um, if they've influenced your writing at all. Well, I think being a journalist obviously means that you're not frightened to write. You know, you, you, have a, you, know, you sit at the desk in the morning, you phone up somebody, you've got to get the story down. Um, and I think one of the things that a lot of people who, who want to write and kind of and do write and kind of like, I think they're so frightened that it's not going to be perfect when they put something down. Um, that they, it kind of almost strangles their creativity or, or it kind of like impedes getting stuff down. But I think having worked as a journalist for 15 years on the Watford Observer I worked on and then I worked on the Hammond High and then I did some shifts on nationals and things. Mm. But you know, it, 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 what it kicks out of you completely is any kind of like, you know, prissiness about getting your copy down because you're just up against the clock and you've got to get it down. And so you can I do a deadline. <laughs> I can do a deadline. In fact, I have to have a deadline because otherwise I could procrastinate for England. You know, if that was an Olympic event, I would be there with my gold medal every time. Um, so if I've got a deadline, I'm great. If you give me any time to do something, I am appalling. And I think that whacked any kind of um, hanging around out of me. So writing isn't frightening. I will, I will sit down and I will do it. 
Um, I think working for the... I loved... See, my whole life is dominated by television, obviously. I used to love the Antiques Roadshow as a teenager. And I really wanted to work with antiques. So when I left university, I studied English at university, but um, in the London University alumni magazine, um, an antique dealer in the West End wanted an assistant. And I thought, oh, that sounds very nice. So I applied and I worked with him for two years um, selling Oriental porcelain, pre-1732. Um, and I learnt an enormous amount. I learnt an enormous amount about porcelain and mainly dusting, which I really wasn't very good at. <laughs> and what I really learnt is that I am probably slightly dyspraxic and I, I broke quite a lot of his stock. I won't actually say his name because, you know, if he's still alive... Does he know? He doesn't know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> the thing was, he used to go off on buying missions. He used to go to, over to Amsterdam and he used to go to France and Brussels and he'd go to auction houses and things. And I'd be left in charge of this beautiful, exquisite little shop and, and I'd be told to dust things. And I used to break things. So I used to go up into Oxford Street, into Woolworths when it was still there, and get some glue. And I would like... I'd wait till the end of the day and then I'd, like, glue things back together and put them at the back of shelves and hope that, you know, he wouldn't know. And I, I must have done... I mean, there, there were these things called laughing boys, which are basically Chinese figures. They're about a foot high, and they're beautifully painted, and they've got big smiley faces. And he had this pair of laughing boys that he was really proud of. And they were beautiful. Mm. And I knocked the nose off one of them. Oh. And um, I glued it back on, it's fine. I put it into the dark of the shelf. And every time people came in, he was so proud of me, he would say, oh, and I have, of course, the laughing... And I'd go, please, please don't bring the laughing boy off the shelf. <laughs> please. No one ever bought the laughing boys while I was there. <laughs> So if we ever see them later on the Antiques Roadshow, and, yeah, and they say, about say the nose. yeah, they say, well, it's such a shame. You know, this this nose is not four thousand pounds off the value, and that would be why. <laughs> and well, actually, in terms of um, your journalism work too, actually going back to that, does that mean that you're a planner with your writing, no, or I don't do you plan just at you all. don't know? No, I just sit down and write. Kind of, and people all do it differently. Mm, people work do, in yeah. different ways. Um, some people um, have to have a plan. Um, but for me, it just kills it because if I know where I'm going, I, I, it's kind of a sight line. I, when I begin, I always know where the book will end. I have no idea how I will get to that point. I just know that that will be the last line, practically. I almost always know what the last line will be. Um, but it just kind of like weaves itself off and kind of, you know, I never. If I, I think if I planned it, it would destroy it for me a bit. I would feel that because half the fun for you as a writer. It's the story telling itself mm. to you. And if you've already got it, then you've done it. And it's a bit, oh, done that. What am I doing now? <laughs> you know. So keep, and keeping on the theme of writing then, so you, you've written, um, at the moment, there's three books published in the Kitty Peck series. Yes. But uh, can we expect any more? Yes, yes, there's one coming out. I've just finished it. I've just done all my line edits, um, which is kind of the end of the process. It's, it's kind of when it comes back to you um, from the publishing house and it's things like did you really mean to put an apostrophe in this it's it's kind of like real <laughs> yeah. kind of you know nitty-gritty stuff or there's a, a gap here do you want to close this gap it's real and sometimes they'll they'll point out or they'll highlight that you've used a word quite often in the chapter and that perhaps you might want to think about finding some alternatives so that's actually quite a, a nice thing um, and it's a really helpful thing as well um, so it's been the real nitty-gritty stage and I've just finished that so Kitty Peck and the Parliament of Shadows has now gone back to favour and um, I've seen the kind of the jacket blurb and I've seen the embryo jacket design for it this week. It's all very exciting when you see that kind of thing. Do you have any um, say in that? So when you see yeah, the jackets, you'd, you'd love to go to. with it. Yeah. No, you, I mean, things I'd love to because they're always different, the jackets mm. of my books. And I, I would really like them to have done a theme at some point for them. But for some reason, um, I think it's because I went through diff various different editors mm. actually and each ed editor has a different vision of how it should be. Um, I did actually have the kind of like 
I suppose I was a bit bolshy. I did say this time, well, could it be a bit more detailed? Because jackets are so beautiful these days. I, I really think, you know, Kitty's world is a bit rich and weird and strange, and perhaps we could, like, reflect that in the... So I got a, a terse note saying, well, we may be able to take this on board. <laughs> Mind you, I do, I do like, because um, I think the jacket on number one and three, they're, they're, they're quite, yeah. they feel very theatrical. The jacket in terms on of... number one I loved. I loved, and that was done by a, a really amazing um, jacket designer, um, and he, 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 I can't remember his name actually. I follow him on Twitter. He's, he's a really lovely man and really funny as well. It will come to me probably in about an hour's time. Um, and when the second book came out, I got a really nice tweet from him saying, I was very disappointed I didn't get to, because I was really looking forward to reading it and doing it. Yeah. So, but yeah, the jacket on the first book was, mm. um, and they used pink because it was Stylist magazine who ran the competition with yeah. Faber. Um, and they wanted it in Stylist magazine at the, at the beginning up front. There's always kind of like a page where they have 20 things you must buy this month. And um, they thought it would look very pretty in their 20 things you must buy this month, which is why. They're... Oh, right. Yes. <laughs> so it was designed with the, you know, the. Yeah. the well, it certainly works. The so, commuter yeah. in mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, Stylist is obviously a commuter magazine. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. So. Well. Um, Kate, thank you very much for talking to oh, us. You're welcome. Um, I can thoroughly recommend your books to our members. Um, as I say, I'm, I'm reading my way through them at the moment. And I'm really enjoying them, oh, and I, I think they will appeal to a lot of people. Um, so I hope this encourages them to, to pick up and give them yes, a try. Yes, pick them um, up. But yeah, try. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you very much anyway for giving your time today. Anyway, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. <laughs>